This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, where inspiration and possibility meet. I believe there are many ways to live life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. I believe that we can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who have acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. Maybe you see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibilities. Each week I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their struggles and their own uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into the space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really, ask yourself that. Join us each week for inspiration, empowerment, and entertainment. You can connect with me from my website at www.howshereallydoesit.com. There's a sign-up for the newsletter, which has upcoming events and tips. There's also Twitter and Facebook links, as well as a place to send me an email. And past shows are available on the website, as well as from iTunes. Ashley Merriman is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Nurture Shock, New Thinking About Children. The central premise of the book is that modern society's most popular strategies for raising children are in fact backfiring because key points in the science of child development and behavior have been overlooked. Please welcome Ashley Miller. Merriman. Hello, Ashley. Hi. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being on the show today. So, um, you know, 
as parents, we're always trying to do the best that we can. And we, through snippets, you know, one of the things when I go and talk with parents is that I explain to them that children like Apple products, Apple computer products, don't come with a manual, right? They come out and we have kind of things that we think is going to work or not going to work, but there's a lot of uncertainty about what really does work. And what I found that was so great about Nurture Shock is that you compile, you know, so much research into one place to kind of give us, okay, you know, we used to think praise would work really well. And, um, and to go, okay, this is, this is what the research shows. How can we best use the information from your book to implement it into our current parenting? Well, it's a great question. And I think the important thing, especially for you know, people who want to actually read Nurture Shock, and hopefully everybody does, is that um, it's not a parenting manual. Mm-hmm. We're not saying, here is the new list of how you should raise your child. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and we don't want people to think it's that, because if they read it, I think they'll be disappointed. And also, everybody will tell you how to raise your kid, right? You can just walk down the street, tap someone on the shoulder, and they'll tell you what's the right or wrong thing to do. And then you tap someone else on the shoulder, and they have the same, you know, they have the same response, but maybe an entirely different approach. Well, how do you know which, which of any of those people to listen to? Mm-hmm. How do you know when you're doing all right, but you have questions? So what we've tried to do is not just show in the context of what's effective praise, but also other aspects throughout the book. Here are what the scientists are looking for. Here's how they actually test these ideas. And these are their findings. We leave it up to an individual parent or an educator or any caregiver to say, hey, this applies to me. Or it doesn't apply to my kid, but I can see where the difference is. I can see that my kid has another issue because of a learning disability or a cultural issue where these things don't apply. But we're hoping to give people a vocabulary and under a framework of what the science knows that they can go forward with. So for praise, for example, you know, 85% of American parents think it's important to praise kids for intelligence, to say, oh, honey, you're so smart. <laughs> but, and the idea is, well, if we boost kids' self-esteem, they will become more achieving mm-hmm. because they'll know that they're so great that they can do things. And therefore, there's no trepidation, oh, my gosh, I might, I might fail. But the research actually shows there's no support for any of that whatsoever. Self-esteem building doesn't lead to more achievement. For one thing, it may be that kids think they're so innately awesome they don't need to improve. But I think even more of a concern is, hmm, you think I'm really amazing and smart because I got an A on my quiz. What you don't know is I just got a B on my math quiz. I'm not going to tell you about the B because what are you going to tell me? Oh, honey, so you're not really that smart after all? Oh, well. So they become sort of invested in these labels and don't want to do anything that jeopardizes the labels. So they're underachieving rather than overachieving. College students who've been overpraised as kids can't pick a college major because they don't want to choose something that two or three years down the road they realize, I'm not really that good at it. So it's those kinds of things and looking exactly where the scientists have looked that I think parents can be the most helpful as a general rule. There are lots of specifics in the book that I would love to see every parent, every school implement just (laughs) very strongly. I want all kids to get more sleep. 
<laughs> well, yes, isn't that the truth? You know, yes. <laughs> and, and it's interesting because I had, um, you know, I think one of the people you're referring to is Dr. Carol Dweck. Mm-hmm. And um, I had her on it as a guest a couple of years ago, and I found her research fascinating, you know, the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I think it does help me as a parent and also as a coach to be, okay, it's about the process, right? right. And, and it gives me that information now. And I still will go into that praise junkie mode, but I don't beat myself up about it. And I go, okay, what can I tweak and do better? And, um, and that's when I looked, when reading your book, Nurture Shock, it was like, okay, even as a parent and the different roles that I stand in, a parent, a coach, you know, a speaker, a radio talk show host, what can I, u- how can I use this information and what resonates and what can I tweak instead of going, oh, I've done it all wrong and now let me redo it. Yeah, my book's not about placing blame. And I don't think conversations about you're a terrible parent or you're a great parent are really helpful. Mm-hmm. I don't, it just, it's, no help more helpful than telling a child you're a wonderful child or you're a terrible child. Uh, what do I do with this information? It's more the specifics. So, you know, for praise, I'm not one of those people who says you can never praise or you can never punish. Kids want feedback. They want to know how they're doing. Mm-hmm. Feedback is valuable, just like you want to know feedback. However, it is about the process. It's about focusing on what a child is doing, not who they are. It's, oh, honey, you worked really hard on that. Even better than, oh, honey, you worked hard on that would be, wow, I really liked the way you brainstormed and thought about your essay before you wrote it. If it's a young child, oh, I really like the way you use different colors in your drawing. These specific things that kids can then replicate the next time. That's really important is giving them these, the more specific the comment, the better. And that, I think, also helps kids you know, believe that they can control something. It's not, you know, their success is under their destinies, what they choose to do. That's all, I think, incredibly important. But I also think that, you know, some people say, well, can I never praise my kid? (laughs) No, you can praise your kid. But what is praise? Praise is recognition for achievement. If your kid did something brand new that was hard for them, then go ahead, praise them. But praise is not manipulation. Praise is not, oh, look at the way Tommy lined up in class. I wish everyone would line up like Tommy. Because <laughs> that's not about rewarding Tommy. Tommy didn't do anything particularly achieving. It was about manipulating the other kids to line up too. Mm-hmm. And Tommy's not fooled. Tommy hates you. Mm-hmm. And the other kids hate Tommy. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things. I hear stories of parents, you know, praise kids because their kids slide down a slide. Not mm-hmm. because they're afraid of the heights of the slide, but because gravity works. Well, gravity works. You don't <laughs> need to praise a kid for that. They didn't figure it out. So that's the kind of thing. I, I used to you know, be completely effusive with the praise of kids that I've been mentoring, and I realized that that was, you know, based not just on Carol's work, but other work, really ultimately disturbing. The good news is I've never had one of my tutoring kids come up to me and say, Ashley, that's what they call me, you used to say I'm smart and you don't anymore. I would have been devastated. They've never complained. Mm -hmm. Now, if they actually work hard on something, I go, wow, honey, you worked really hard on that. And most of the time they look at me and go, yeah, I did. 
because they know that they worked hard on it. Mm-hmm. My saying you worked hard on it or you're smart was, you know, really apparently the scientists have informed me the modern-day equivalent of the Charlie Brown teacher. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and isn't that what we really, because self-confidence is about from the inside, it coming from the inside, not relying on the praise from the outside. Mm-hmm. And so when I love in your video, you talked about the cellophane wrapped child mm-hmm. who's always been given stuff or maybe wrapped in praise. And yeah. Well, I, you know, I've been talking about how I, I think that the kid, I actually was using the term bubble wrapped. Okay. I liked dumping a bubble wrap when I was a kid. I, I think that, you know, the idea is that you've got this constructed image that everyone has told you, you're special, you're talented, you're smart, you're whatever, and everything you do risks proving them wrong. Mm-hmm. And you end up just sort of popping, that's why I use the bubble wrap, uh, sort of bit by bit popping your self-image. And you can't really live up to this reputation of being perfect and special and wonderful all the time. You're going to have a bad day. You're going to bomb a class. And if your construct, you know, if your self-image is relied on all of that praise, what do you do with that information? And I've been telling a lot of parents and educators, I think it's so important that we give kids room to fail. Mm-hmm. It's not that we need to encourage failure, but what we need to do is say, you made a mistake. What did you learn from that? Mm-hmm. We don't need to say, oh, I know you're going to do better next time, because you don't. <laughs> <laughs> True. Right? And, and, and that's not necessarily valuable anyway. What you want to do is, it's okay to make a mistake. Did you learn from it? If you're perfect all the time, that means you're not trying anything new. It means you're not growing. And giving kids that value that this is okay, I don't expect perfection all the time, I think is one of the best gifts we can give kids. Way more ultimately valuable than just saying you're wonderful you're wonderful you're wonderful so i have a little story this morning um i woke up and my kids for some reason they're deciding they want to get up at six o'clock and um and so they they got up and they were they made themselves breakfast and they they wanted to clean up because in the end once all that stuff is done they can watch some tv Mm -hmm. and so um that's kind of the standard rule. So they decide to get up at six. And then my daughter comes up to me and she goes, mom, I want to make you coffee. And she's about 11 and she loves to cook. And so she goes, tell me how it works. And I'm, so I, you know, I, she's done it before. She wanted to know what the scoop measurement was to the cup of water measurement. So she goes and doesn't, she goes, mom, I put the coffee grounds where the water's supposed to go. So in the back of the pot, in the back of the coffee maker. Right. And, and so I was like, okay. And I go, well, we just have to wash it out and, you know, make sure it's unplugged. And so she does it. And I go, finally go back and I help her with that. So we get it all cleaned out. And then I walk away out of the kitchen. And then all of a sudden I hear this, um, mom, (laughs) I did it again. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. And so we clean it out and, and I was really calm and it, you know, it was, I was, part of me goes, I could have just done this and it would have been faster. And I'm like, well, it is what it is. And I didn't, and I'm, this is just also me as I'm going through my own processes of changing as a parent. And I thought about it later on and I went, wow, as a kid, had I done that, I would have been yelled at, you know, I would have made a mistake. I would have been scolded. And what a gift I gave my child by not yelling at her and going, okay, well, we did it on the wrong hall and that happens, right? Mm-hmm. What can we learn from this? Like maybe why did you, you know, and I haven't really talked to her too much about it, but it happened and we eventually got the coffee and it was made and it was good. 
But I, I realized the transition I made from how I was parented to how I'm ma- parenting with her mm-hmm. and going, okay, mistakes happen. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not a bad person where I would have, my whole day would have been ruined as a child because I would have been told I was really messed up. Well, it was really interesting to me. I was talking to Nancy Darling, a researcher at Oberlin, who specializes in teenagers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's the sort of famous billboards, it's 10 o'clock, do you know where your teenager is, right? Mm-hmm. And Nancy and other researchers have found that teen disclosure isn't based on parent interrogation. It's based on, is the teen willing to tell you something? Mm-hmm. And, and that's really important. If they keep talking to you, they care enough about your opinions that they want you to stay involved. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what's advice that I should give parents who are worried about their kids feeling disconnected? And, and I quote, her advice was, quote, don't freak out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, come on, Nancy, I need something a little more specific. You know, let's be real here. <laughs> and she said, no, really, that's the best advice I can give is don't freak out. Because in small moments, kids are watching for your response. And if you lose it for a coffee pot mm-hmm. or a bad grade, you're never going to know why there's suddenly a new dent in the car fender. Mm-hmm. They're looking for you for those cues to say, you know, my mom listened to me and she understood this. So if that's okay, then I should probably tell her that I had a fight with my friend. Mm-hmm. And, and she might not, and she's probably going to be okay or cool. Or I mean, it doesn't mean you can't have an opinion, mm-hmm. but that sort of emotional you know, and the vitriol, is they're cueing in those small moments to see if they can trust you with those bigger ones as they get older. Well, and, you know, it's so funny that you say that because I was thinking about that and I mentioned the one, the only comment I really had later, my husband was, he came home and so we were, and I told him what had happened and I said, you know, Mia, thank you so much for telling me that there was coffee grounds in the water section of the, of the coffee maker. Because I probably, you know, as a child would not have told somebody because I wouldn't want people to know I made the mistake. I said, so thank you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we, we, and she was like, oh yeah, you know, and life went on, but you're right. It was those little moments that that trust is built. It's not these big moments where we have a family meeting and have these discussions, right? right. It's all those little things that we do and the kids go, okay, I can trust my mom. And when you thanked her, that was teaching her about the value of honesty. Mm-hmm. Parents are very committed to teaching their kids lying is bad. Mm-hmm. But there isn't not nearly the sort of priority in terms of the value of honesty. Thank you for telling me that you broke the lamp instead of saying, I don't know why it's broken, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is such a more common thing to do. So that's another one of the important things to do is you know, give those opportunities when they are honest. Say thank you, and I appreciate that. Um, it tells them, again, honesty is something that we value in this house. And it's those little moments that I think really make a big difference. Yes. In, in fact, one of my favorite studies that we wrote about in the book was work by uh, UC USB researcher Bella DiPaolo on a paper about serious lies. And what Bella had done is she had a room in her lab with a tape recorder and a chair and a table and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And she sent in people into the room and she said, here's a number. I don't want to know your name. I don't want to know anything about you, except here's your number. Go in and tell my tape recorder the worst lie you've ever told. The worst lie. 
and I will never track you. I will, I don't, so I don't care what it is. It will never go past that room. There's no way I know who you are, so don't worry about it. And she heard stories of affairs and used car dealers telling about how they'd ripped off clients and the whole nine yards. And then she also heard, um, when I was five, I ate the frosting on my birthday cake and I told mommy it came that way. And I wanted to scratch my initials into the chest of drawers in the living room, but I knew I'd get in trouble, so I used my brother's initials instead. (laughs) And at first, Bella was annoyed by these, going, oh, come on, you guys, I have a grant. I have to actually publish a finding, and these are the worst lies you've ever told me. Stop wasting my time. And the stories kept coming. The, I was and I took a dollar from my mommy's wallet and I never told her where I got the money from. (laughs) And what she realized, she actually got so many of them, she had to create a new category in her research for them. And what she realized over time was that these were actually the worst lie that the person had ever told. Not because it was the most egregious or the most damaging to anybody else. It wasn't the last lie they'd ever told. It was when they realized, I'm not mommy's little angel. It was when they thought to themselves, ooh, lying is powerful, and I can do this, and I can get away with it. Or, oh my gosh, I got caught. I never lied again. I'm one of the most honest people you ever know. But those early lies and, and whether or not people, they got caught, how they got responded to, really shaped their image of who they were for decades to come. This is Corinne Motokaitis and Ashley Merriman. She's the co-author of Nurture Shock, New Thinking About Children, and you're listening to how she really does it. So what, what can we do as parents? Because you have that whole chapter of lying in your book. And, and it's fascinating to, to see what age groups, when they do start to lie, what can we do as parents to, I guess, deal with this? Well, the important thing to realize is that almost every child will lie. And this is not an indictment on a parent. <laughs> and it is not an indictment on the child either. <laughs> um, that's really important. You can't go, oh, my gosh, my three-year-old's just an evil human being. Look at the lie he just told. Um, actually, three-year-olds are quite often start lying by four. If you give, the, give kids sort of a staged experiment where the kids are given a game to play, and in the middle of the play, the researcher will say, oh, I forgot, I have to go make a phone call. Will you, will you be right here? But don't peek at the par- cards while I'm gone, okay? And then they leave the room. The researchers hope the kids will peek mm-hmm. because there's a hidden camera, so mm-hmm. they'll know. But the researcher comes back, did you peek? It's the response, no, I didn't peek, or yeah, I peeked. And how they cover up this lie, that's what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And they found that by four years old, about 80% of the kids will peak, and 80% of those kids will lie. Mm-hmm. No, I didn't peak. No, I didn't cheat. And you actually will get kids as young as three lying. Um, that's usually a sign of early intelligence or that they have siblings. <laughs> <laughs> if they have siblings, they catch on to this lying thing much quicker. And the important thing then, so 
is, again, the Nancy Darling rule, don't freak out. But it's about focusing on the value of honesty, like I was saying before. Lots of people, you know, I think, who doesn't know the story of the boy who read Waltz? Who doesn't know the story of Pinocchio? But think about what happens to the boy who cried wolf. Do you remember? No. You know, I mean, there's like something bad, right? Uh But he gets eaten by the wolf. That's what his punishment for telling his early lies. He gets eaten. Think about Pinocchio. You remember what happens to Pinocchio? Yes. It's not just his nose. His nose grows. Everybody remembers that part. But you know what else happens to him? He's abandoned into an island and a sh- and sort of a ship that is full of orphans who never mm-hmm. see their families again and turn from human, though he's not even human, that's his hope, into animals, like donkeys. These, these are our stories of what we tell children, if you lie, what happens to you? You're eaten or you're orphaned and become permanently non-human. Those stories are intended to be you know, the ultimate cautionary tale, so you're not going to lie, but they actually increase lying in kids. Because the kids learn, not I shouldn't lie, but if I'm going to lie, I better not get caught. Because the penalty is so severe. So kids who are under constant threat for punishment, for lying, actually lie more. And actually become better at it. They do actually fool you and get away with punishment. So the more productive thing, especially for a very young child, is that focus on honesty. To say something like, before, when you know, right, if they've got frosting all over their face, <laughs> and you say, what happened to the cupcake? Now, you don't need to have that conversation, right? Mm-hmm. You know what happened to the cupcake. What you're really doing is testing that kid's veracity. And I promise you, most times they will fail. Mm-hmm. So don't have that conversation because you're just asking the kid to lie to you. It's just as if you and I forgot to go to a meeting. Mm-hmm. And someone called and said, what happened? Uh, car trouble. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? We don't want to be confronted with our mistakes either. <laughs> so if your kid's got frosting all over the face, say, hmm, looks like you got frosting all over your face. Maybe we should wash it off. Or was the cupcake good? You know you weren't supposed to have the cupcake till after dinner. Right? You don't need to say what happened, you know. So we don't need to test kids and set them up for lying. We also, if you see that moment when you think they're going to lie, or when you're genuinely not sure what's going on, the more effective pr- approach isn't, and if you lie to me, I'll know and I'll punish you, because you're not going to know, and that just makes them freak out. It's, it would make me really happy if you told me the truth. For kids who are sort of in a pattern of lying, researchers actually suggest that it's important to say, I won't punish you if you tell me the truth. I don't care if you broke the lamp. All I want to know is, did you tell me? You tell me what happened. And that will make me happy. The scientists say that that's so effective because the, the reality is, just like us, young kids are lying because they're telling you what they want, what you want to hear. They know it would make you upset to know that they broke the lamp. So they're going to tell you, I didn't break the lamp. Mm -hmm. Are you happy now? Very young children, three or four-year-olds, may actually have some sort of magical realism thing where they actually think that now history has changed and they really didn't in the past break the lamp because they disavowed the act. Uh, We're not exactly sure what's going on in a three-year-old's head because they're three. But 
but they are telling you something you they think you want to hear. So if you tell them what would make me happy is hearing the truth, you've now taken away that whole impetus for lying to begin with. So that's the kind of thing that we want to do. And we also want to tell them stories about how honesty is rewarded. So the story of George Washington, where the father at the end says, I would rather you know, you know, lose a grove of prized cherry trees because I'm so proud of my honest son, hearing those stories actually increase honesty, even when you're confessing to something you had as a mistake. So the parents are going right now, but how do I teach my child a lesson if they lied and I don't punish them? Can you respond to that? Well, I didn't, I didn't say don't punish them for the lie. <laughs> <laughs> I said, say, if you tell me the truth, I won't punish you. And it's interesting because researchers like Victoria Talwar have told me that truly if you ask the kid, did you break something, and they say no, there's no two punishments. There's no one punishment for lying about it, one punishment for breaking it, right? Mm-hmm. So the, And they don't understand that you're punishing them for the lie or you're punishing them for the breaking it. It's one sort of moment of punishment transgression, and they can't tell why you're so upset or what thing they're actually being punished for. Mm-hmm. So if you specifically say, I won't punish you if you tell me the truth, now they understand there's a reward for being honest. If a kid has lied, and you didn't set them up for it. It's not the what happened when you know, mm-hmm. and they lie. Yeah, you can punish them for that. That's important. Bella DePaulo's research with those very young kids, or the old adults thinking about their young lies, it was very much, if I got away with it, if I didn't get punished, that they definitely learned lying was a social strategy that was successful and one they should use. Mm-hmm. So you absolutely want to respond to lies after they've been told. But we don't want to bait kids into lying, and we don't want to threaten them into telling us the truth. Instead, we just want to respond, you lied, and you should be punished for that. And so, okay, so we say to them, to your, your, okay, well, let's do a teenager, right? Mm-hmm. Teenager goes out, sneaks <laughs> out of the... Okay. <laughs> oh, okay, well, then maybe we should stay with the kid. Okay, let's do with it, my child. So my child... Um, opens up a game for her DSI that she's not supposed to open. And I say to her, if you tell me the truth, I won't punish you. Mm-hmm. So even though she did something she wasn't supposed to do, but she, she owns up to it, mm-hmm. I'm not supposed to punish her? Well, I think an 11-year-old is old enough to understand that you know, there was some punishment. Okay. So, or there was a cost, because you've already told her, don't do that. Mm-hmm. If she was, so you might say, well, at least you told me the truth. So instead of grounding you for three days, I'll ground you for a day. Or okay. I'm not saying that that's the right response. But I'm just saying to, to articulate, I appreciate that you did that. What I think when it becomes valuable is if kids get into a pattern of lying, mm-hmm. especially very young children. You know, I, I hear stories of parents of four and five and six-year-olds who are just saying every word that comes out of their kids' mouths is a lie. Mm-hmm. And for them, you may actually need to say, I told you not to eat the cookie, you lied about it, you know, tell me that you ate the cookie, and I won't punish you, and not punish them for either the transgression or the lie, I mean, because they were honest, to really change the pattern to stop them from lying and realizing that this is a separate thing we're working on. And then once they're actually starting to be honest, you can worry about punishing those transgressions. For, but that's, again, for, you know, your five- to seven-year-old. And one of the reasons 
that that's really important for very young kids is they understand lying in a different way than you and I do. Mm-hmm. Young children don't think intent is relevant. Any mistake of fact is a lie. So if you were telling a six-year-old, we're going to go to the circus, and you forgot that your husband was going to take them swimming, mm-hmm. the five- and six-year-old will tell you, Mommy lied. Mommy said we were going to the circus. Even if it was a completely innocent mistake, any mistake of fact, not the I made, you know, I intended to do wrong, I intended to hurt you, is considered a lie for a very young child. So that's another one of the reasons why it's important to see what they understand and what they're responding to rather than just sort of give you a blanket. You know, this is it. And that's why we also have to value honesty and that kind of thing. Well, and Ashley, you know, because as a life coach, I work with clients, and especially with my weight loss clients. I mean, they, they lie to themselves all the time, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and whether it's a lie that they tell themselves to justify eating what they want to eat or how they perceive them themselves. And so we work on, you know, honesty, but, and you mentioned that, and it's really important is that a lot of times parents, um, how our children turn out is, is our badge of whether we did a good enough job. And in the lying factor, you know, parents will be like, well, my child, we hear this all the time. My, of course, my child would never lie. My child's a really good kid. But in the end, don't we all lie to a certain degree? Well, I think, you know, the, the parents who are saying my kid would never lie um, are, haven't caught them or haven't seen kids lie mm-hmm. in their presence. But it, statistically, most kids lie. Mm-hmm. And I think that parents and adults also need to look at their own culpability, not in terms of response to kids lying um, by itself, but also modeling. You know, parents who would say, I never lie and my kids never lie, (laughs) if I make a really atrocious casserole for the potluck, are you going to tell me, oh my God, that was the worst thing I've ever eaten? My guess is not. You know, even the most honest of us would probably say, thank you for bringing it. Mm-hmm. Most might actually say, no, it actually was really good. Thank you. You know, and I appreciate it. And those white lies, especially for young children who don't yet understand this intent thing. Say, well, mommy, again, mommy lied. That was terrible. <laughs> Why would she say such a thing? Lying must be okay. And the kids are watching these white lies. And especially for like 7 to 11-year-olds, white lies are extremely difficult for um, young children to understand. And when you ask them to white lie, it's very complicated and it just, you can see the agony in kids' faces when they're asked to lie. Uh, One of my sort of favorite stories, this one researcher, a child development psychologist, professor at a major university, and his wife took their young daughter to grandma's house for Christmas. And she, and you know, it's the first little girl, you know, grandma's just beside herself on how excited she is about her present, right? And the little girl opens it and immediately pronounces she doesn't like it. Grandma's devastated. So for a month before next Christmas, they're coaching her. Remember, no matter what you think, tell grandma you love the present. Tell grandma you love the present. On the car ride to grandma's house, tell grandma you love the present. She's, okay, okay, okay. She opens her Christmas present and immediately bursts into tears. And her parents are furious. 
up at her daddy with tears streaming down her face. But, Daddy, I really like it, and I don't know what to do. <laughs> you know, they had just so told to her constantly, your opinion doesn't matter, you must lie, that when she was confronted with the good truth, she just did not know how to respond. <laughs> I just love that story. It makes me cry every time. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it sounds like a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, Ashley, is about how we communicate with our children. And, and the more we can be specific about things to help teach them about the process, the more effective we can be. Well, I, you know, I think that that's, it, that's a developmental question. Uh -huh. And... Yes, we definitely, in terms of school-age kids, want to be specific in terms of, you know, even three- and four-year-olds. But we don't necessarily need to think that they're going to understand the underlying premise because they won't get it. Uh -huh. So for lying or for that white lie kind of a thing, you just want to say, well, we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, so we just say thank you and it's nice. And, you know, you just say it's about politeness. This is what we say. <laughs> uh -huh. Don't have them necessarily understand empathy because the part of the brain, the RPTJ, the right temporoparietal junction, isn't fully developed until seven or eight. And the ability to perceive and feel empathy in the brain is just not there. So if you're going to try and tell a four-year-old to consider how that kid's feeling, could be a complete waste of time on a neurological mm -hmm. level. Instead, you just need to say, no, we don't do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think it's... You know, it's not just obviously about specifics. It's about um, understanding where the child is, but then being clear about what you want. I think that that's actually okay. the more important thing. And not doing some sort of, you know, like there are interesting studies about kids sharing. And a four-year-old, when you say, can I have some of your cookie? will probably give it to you. Mm -hmm. But... A four-year-old, when you go, hmm, I'm really hungry. I wish I had a cookie right now. We'll stare at you. They won't necessarily go, oh, does that mean you want some of mine? The sort of passive-aggressive thing doesn't work for kids. Mm -hmm. So if we tell them what we're thinking and why, you know, not a, you, for a very young child, you probably don't need to say why, but, you know, being clear on what you're thinking rather than having them sort of extrapolate out, I think is important. You know, especially in the conversation, you know, we've, in the book wrote about you know, conversations with kids about race. Mm -hmm. And white parents mm -hmm. very often will say that they never talk about race. Or if they do talk about race with, say, kids kindergarten and younger, that they do, but the way they do it is something like, God loves us all, mm -hmm. or what matters is on the inside, or everybody's equal. And those are all lovely sentiments, but they have nothing to do with race, as far as the kid's concerned. The kid doesn't know what you're talking about. You know, what I, one of my favorite ones, I heard in a conference, and someone had been telling her son for several years, honey, you know, it's what's on the inside that counts. And, and he finally just sort of burst out at dinner, why do I care about people's kidneys? <laughs> I mean, he just had no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> and it, it'd be really just completely perplexed. And, you know, if you think about it, it's a, you know, a young kid hearing everybody's equal. Well, that's just patently untrue, isn't it? 
you're taller than I am. I'm older than your kid is. Some are boys, some are girls. Some kids are good at soccer. Some kids hate soccer. What is this? Everybody's the same nonsense. This isn't true. Mm -hmm. So why are you talking about this? So for the researchers and said, well, what's the better conversation to have with a young child about race? The model is a conversation about gender. I don't think anybody listening to your show would have a problem with my saying, telling a kid, boys and girls can both play together. Boys and girls should can play soccer, they can play softball or baseball, they can read books or do science. It doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl, you can do any of that. And you can grow up to be, you know, work in a restaurant or work in a hospital, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be a teacher, it doesn't matter. And we can have that same conversation about race. Brown people and black people and white people and yellow people can all be our friends. They can all play soccer, um, eat pizza, be doctors, lawyers, work in kitchens, be teachers, whatever they want. And we don't need to tell kids the entire history of the civil rights movement at eight, Maybe at eight they would actually be interested, but we can have that conversation about everyone needs to be our friends when you're with specifics at two, at three. And that's, that's what we're talking about is those differences where you, you age it at what they understand, but you're specific. You don't just say everybody's equal and make them think they've figured it out on their own because they're lost. Well, yeah, and, and it's it, you're right because it's about that that age appropriate. What is this conversation that they understand? What are things that they understand? And then helping teach the process, like when you mentioned at the top of the interview about oh, you know, I really like the colors that you mm -hmm. put into that picture. That gives them some more understanding about why you're giving this judgment of oh, that's a beautiful picture, right. or you know, oh, you're such a great drawer. We'll we'll explain why in an age appropriate manner. Yeah, and I mean, I think that it is about giving kids things that they can replicate mm -hmm. and not hiding the ball, not speaking in code to kids, because kids don't have the secret of code ring. Mm -hmm. You think that you don't have a parenting manual. Well, they don't have a secret of code ring to what you want from them. So they need you to tell them <laughs> in very clear language that they understand. And, and that, I think, is really valuable to kids. This is Corinne Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It. Our guest today is Ashley Merriman, and she's the co-author of Nurture Shock, New Thinking About Children. And so, Ashley, when, you, when you're talking about this, one of the things that brings to mind is I was a swimmer for a really long time. I had a career of about 15 years. And um, when I was a kid, like 10, 11, 12, 13, I was kind of clueless about stuff. I didn't really realize how good I was or wasn't. I just liked to swim. It was that simple. And... Um, but one of the things that would happen, because I didn't have much self-confidence, is that maybe a coach or somebody would say, oh, well, you know what, you have enough talent that you should be junior nationals. And they would they would give me this external feedback, but I was like, really? How? What? Me? And if you have a deep limiting belief about yourself that you're a loser, it doesn't really matter what somebody else says. And so this would go on, and then if they wouldn't say it for a long period of time, I would say, oh, see, it was just kind of a fluke. They didn't really mean that I could do this because I didn't understand how success was attained. And so then if they didn't sit and then I was like, well, see if it was really true, they would say it a lot more. And I was so externally fixated and it wasn't until I think I became like 17. And, and then when I was going off to college to go swim in college that I started to go, OK, well, what is it that I want? And let me see what I can do. 
instead of relying so much on the externals. Mm -hmm. But as parents, I mean, we want our kids, you know, a lot of times parents want their kids to be successful. They want their kids to strive for success. You know, they want them to be hard workers. Mm -hmm. um, how can parents and coaches, teachers help kids on this journey that people want to be successful? Well, I think what you were saying was interesting, but I also think if your if your coach had constantly said you should go to Junior Olympics every day, you wouldn't have believed that either. No, I did. I wouldn't. It didn't matter. Right. It wasn't actually. You were saying if they, as as a kid, you were thinking to yourself, well, if they meant it, they would say it more. Mm -hmm. But if you'd heard it all the time, you would have thought it was just as insincere. Yep. So if I was your coach and I knew what the science says, because <laughs> I totally wouldn't have done this if I hadn't read all the science would be to say, you know, your time for that last 200 yards is competitive for what the kids were doing at Junior Olympics last year. Mm -hmm. Where I wonder where you would have ranked. Mm -hmm. And then give you the times and say, look at your time. Where are you? How do you think you did? Do you want to try and get to where those kids were and give you a real tangible specific goal and understanding exact, exactly how much you had accomplished and here's a guide on how much more we think you can achieve and that you need to achieve to be on that level and then you could decide you know that's four seconds that I just don't think I can shave off my time I, I don't have you know I've got other interests I've got school I can't be in the pool that much or you might have said you know I think that's doable I can do this. So I think, again, it is those specifics, but it's focusing on what they're doing and not who they are. Mm -hmm. well, and that that, you know, because ultimately, I don't care if you're getting an A or an F. You want to get better. Mm -hmm. Right? Kids want to be better. And it's how do you get better? That's the key. And it's not about self-confidence as much as it is about self-efficacy, a belief that I know I can do it. In fact, it's really interesting. I've been just reading a research paper this morning about self-confidence. And have you ever noticed people who are wrong all the time are really certain about it? There's no doubt. <laughs> but they're still wrong. There's not necessarily a, you know, a shaking, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I can do this. People can be just as certain and self-confident and completely in error as they can be self-confident or lack confidence and be completely correct. So the question is about helping people understand what strategies they're using and is that the right strategy. And if it's the right strategy, then you should be confident in it and be able to use that in other circumstances. If it's not working, then you need to figure out how to reevaluate that. One of my favorite uh, researchers was talking to me about, Elena Bodrova was telling me, you know, your A student walks out of a quiz and you say, hey, honey, how'd you do? Mm -hmm. Their response isn't, I aced it, because I always ace things. It's, I missed question number three and question number five. I think I got six, eight, and ten right. The other ones probably have credit. And the struggling student walks out of that same quiz and you say, honey, honey, how'd you do? I don't know. They could get an A or an F. Either way, it's a genuine surprise, because they don't have this metacognition, this sense on, how am I doing? 
And if I don't know how I'm doing or how much I've mastered, I can't ask for help. I can't realize, hey, I need to stay in the pool an extra hour because I didn't know I was struggling. So it's helping kids with that awareness that's really the most beneficial to them, to give them the ability ultimately on their own to say, I need help with this. I'm doing better. That's really where you can make the difference because you don't want kids calling you from college their college dorms saying, did I study enough for my quiz tomorrow? Right? Mm-hmm. You want them to know that. And, and when they also, don't you think it's important you talked about like, okay, we pick a strategy and go about it. And then it's and like, I talk about it as, you know, testing it out, seeing what happens. And does this help you get the results that you want? And maybe if not, how can we evaluate it? That would maybe get you the results that you want. I mean, as a, as a swim coach, we look at that. Right. Well, that's the response that we were talking about earlier in terms of when a kid makes a mistake mm-hmm. or fails. That's, and, you know, kids who get 100% all the time, you know, Carol Dweck, who we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, says, you don't need to praise that kid. Instead, you need to say, honey, is this all old material you already knew and you're bored? Because I don't want you to be bored. Mm-hmm. So... You know, the kid who is just sort of having things come naturally to them is actually not learning any strategies either because they're just sort of doing things kind of almost by rote. And what we want is that development of that strategy. We want that development of the skill. So it's how you respond to those difficulties that helps kids go, you know, that didn't work. I should try again in a different way next time. So is it that we're trying to develop children to become more agile as they become adults? Is that what we're doing now, or is that the goal? I'm not sure. Is that, is that well, like with, with this information, you know, is it that we're trying to develop so that they have kind of an agile brain to, as things happen in life, they can go, oh, okay, this, this is difficult right now. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean, it doesn't define me as who I am. I actually think that agile is probably a nice way of thinking more in terms of creativity, in terms of if I made a mistake, what are my options the next time in making a new approach? Mm -hmm. But what I think you're really talking about that is the other aspect I really want kids to learn is to develop persistence. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem with praise, is that praise teaches kids, you get constant rewards, well, what if there's no reward? Then you stop, you give up. I hate pizza for books. Pizza for books totally works as long as there's pizza. But as long as there's no pizza, there's no more books. Mm -hmm. And what we need to teach kids is persistence, that you didn't get a reward today, but if you work hard and you keep going, you might get a reward tomorrow or maybe next week, or maybe it won't be for a few months. But the faith in knowing if I keep working and I keep developing, I can work through these periods of difficulty and move on to something else. That's really what we're looking for those kids who are persistent and knowing that if I keep practicing or if I keep studying, that makes a difference, rather than the kids who just say, well, apparently I'm not as great as I thought I was, so I should just give up and try. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, you know, whether it's for myself, and I try to remind myself this as a parent, or when I'm working with parents, is that when these, when these mistakes come about, it's not this doom or die. It's, okay, what can we learn from this to move forward? You know, maybe your child acts this way. Okay, so what's going on and what can we learn from this? And then this will actually make us stronger. Mm-hmm. You know, and so often I find parents like in swimming, a child would get decued and disqualified. Oh, they shouldn't disqualify six-year-olds. And I'm like, but why not? 
I mean, this is how we learn. And it doesn't mean that they're a bad person or that, that they can't. It's wouldn't you rather have them get disqualified at six than when they're at the Olympic trials? And this actually happened. We had our world record holder um, in two, it was it 2000 was disqualified. Yeah, or no, it was in 96. She was disqualified because it was a mistake. It was a very, and that was never caught at the lower levels. And, and then it was like, oh, well, this is a really great swimmer, so we don't have to worry about her. Well, she gets disqualified. She does not make it to the Olympics. And so I'm like, I would rather the kids learn these to use when they're young and that, okay, you get disqualified than when a gold medal's on the line. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I usually tell the parents who say, you know, I don't keep, we don't keep score at our soccer game. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, you don't keep score. Ask your kids. Mm-hmm. They know exactly how many goals were scored, and they know who scored them and who missed the kick. So just because we're saying it's not important doesn't mean that it's not important to the kids. The kids are paying attention. They want to, again, they want to know how to do better. Well, my daughter, I just found this quote that my daughter had said when she was four. She's 11 now, but she was four. She said that, um, you know, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose, but you always keep your wins in your heart. And so, and that, you know, that just speaks to what you had said. Kids really remember what they do and what they don't do. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be a good or a bad thing. It's just what it is. Mm-hmm. So as we're wrapping up here, Ashley, what are a couple of takeaways that the parents listening to the show today or teachers or educators, coaches can do to help the children that they are either parenting or working with or interacting with? Well, we talked a lot about praise, so I'm not going to talk more about praise. Okay. I'm going to talk about sleep, okay, which we yes. did earlier. All kids need more sleep. Mm-hmm. Only 5% of American high school seniors get eight hours of sleep. The recommended amount of sleep for an adolescent, and brain adolescence lasted until about 25, is nine and a quarter hours. Preschool students who get less than 10 hours of sleep are 300% more likely to be obese. And that likelihood of, and that shortened sleep in preschool predicts bullying in eighth grade, more likely to be delinquent and use pot by 14, anxious and depressed as adults. So early sleep, and every 15 minutes counts. On average, A students get 15 minutes of sleep more than B students who get 15 minutes more sleep than C students and all the way down. So it's not saying, well, you know, I, I can't get my kid four more hours of sleep get them 10. Mm-hmm. 10 minutes more of sleep actually matters. So if your kid's falling asleep in the car on the way to school or on the way home or before when they're watching TV, they're not getting enough sleep. If they need an alarm clock, as opposed to your kids who are just waking up at <laughs> six, they are sleep deprived. And it can change the academic ability. It can change cognitive function and mood. There's nev- there may not be such a thing as teen moodiness. All of the symptoms of teen moodiness, impulsivity, depression, rapid mood changes, short temper, are all symptoms of sleep deprivation. So I really encourage everyone to be watching kids and getting them more sleep. They will be learning better, they will be healthier, and they will be happier and better able to handle the stresses of life. We're all tired, but that's one. Thank you very much, Ashley. Thank you for being a guest on the show, and we are about to run out of time. So this is Corinne Modakaitis, and you've been listening to How She Really 